Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. So we're finishing up on the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So to kind of kind of recap a little bit of what we talked about last week is the first part is that unbelief in God can be intergenerational. Now, belief in God can also be intergenerational. But what is it that we're talking about there when we when we say it that way? That the belief of the parents or the belief uh, or the unbelief of the parents is is inf- influences the next generation. That's the point of that. And so the commitment level of the parent in terms of how in terms of what you say about the faith and then I think in some sense even more significantly how you live the faith is an influencer to the next generation. All right. Now, does that guarantee anything? Let's say that you're a very devout you have very devout parents. They're in church all the time and they do all the stuff with the church. Does that guarantee that the next generation is going to be as active or even even interested in church? No. And that's something that we see uh, uh, more and more now in, uh, in subsequent generations. So it's not a guarantee, but by the same token, what would be the value of raising your children in the faith? If it doesn't do any good, why do it? All right, I, kind of what I'm asking. I mean, does it do good? Is there is there is there some value to it? Yeah. Usually, if you've been raised in a Christian environment, when the trials and troubles come, that's where you have a fallback. Okay, so there is something to go back to, is what you're saying. Okay, good point. Good point. Yeah. Sometimes that loving, caring attitude is directed at their parents. (laughs) Can you say more about that? I don't have any idea what you're talking about there. As you age, it's nice to have the support of your children and have them involved in your lives. And if they grow up with that caring, loving attitude that Christianity seems to develop into people, uh, sometimes they turn and direct that back at you, which is kind of nice. Yeah. So is there like an age at which that happens? I'm just wondering when that is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'll let you know. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. It, now, and and since you're mentioning it in the group, if you'll let the group know too when that when that happens, that would be terrific. Yeah. And I say oh. who, who your child marries has a big. Oh, that's a little different gig, isn't it? Huh? A little different deal. Uh, who your your adult uh, child marries, and maybe to what degree that is already of high value in that spouse. Now, again, sometimes you can have somebody get married to somebody that did not grow up churched and did not know Jesus or maybe knew Jesus in a, in, in a, in a kind of a uh, maybe limited way. And then the strength of that spouse brings that person in. And if that person has a positive experience in the church setting where that person, where that couple is, that actually can, can, can move it in that direction. But sometimes we also see, and at least I do in my work, is that someone from a church background will marry somebody from an unchurched background. 
and then eventually it's they both become unchurched or at least dechurched, and that's that's the easier way for people to go, but it's not necessarily a good way to go. Okay, this might be generational. How many of you grew up with somebody telling you that you should marry a Lutheran if that's what you were? Can we see a show of hands? Oh, wow, quite a few, quite a number of us. And so how many of us were obedient to that, to that thought? Okay, yeah. All right, so was there an advantage to that? Or what do you think about that? Those of you or those of us that experienced that, what do you think? Yeah. I dated a Lutheran when I was a kid, and I thought she was kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was raised church of Christ. Yeah. And you had to stay that denomination. Sure. Because the Baptists were kind of whack. The Lutherans were really weird. So, fortunately, I grew up. Yeah. So I was ripping my faith. Yeah. We thought well, Luther had Luther had something right, so we came back to our roots. Okay, yeah. That's why I'm, I got that hyphen. You, know, you have all those hyphens next to your next to your. Uh, what else? Uh, just the the denominational thing. You know, I mean, again, it's. So I think somewhat in today's world, people get a little put off by that. And, but I remember my grandparents had told my mom and dad that they needed to marry Lutheran. And, and it needed to be of a certain language as well, right? Um, and so that was just kind of the way that it was. And then when, uh, when I was a kid, it, was, it wasn't like it was uh, mandated, but it was certainly expressed that there might be some benefit to it uh, financially. So, you know, or, or that there might be some aspect of life that would be easier if you were of that denomination. Now, I know that when I went through the seminary, there was a kind of a, it never was stated as a rule, but it was stated as this would be a really good thing is if you would marry a lady who was already Lutheran. And the interesting aspect of that is, is that I don't think that's any more the case because I think that now partly because there's so many second career people coming into the seminary to become, uh, to become Lutheran pastors, that it's not necessarily a given that the wife would be of a Lutheran background or have the current life as a Lutheran. And so you can kind of see where when there isn't that unity, when there isn't that sense of we're sort of in this together denominationally, much less uh, religiously in terms of our, our faith in Jesus and the way we express that, you can kind of see where that would create some difficulties. Okay, does that maybe a good way of saying that? Yeah, okay. Pardon? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. I don't know what you mean by that. Because if, you, if you're strong and you marry someone who isn't, you could bring them closer. And I think that's the same There can be that. It just doesn't always play out that way. It kind of depends on how strong in the denomination that person was and is there any, what is the similarity? So for example, in many situations, 
it's easier for a Lutheran and a Catholic to get married to each other than it is for a Lutheran and a Baptist to get married to each other. Have you noticed that? No, I haven't noticed at all. <laughs> it's, it's not that it's a good or bad. I have to be, now I'm walking the tightrope here. Do you notice that? Yeah. But, because, but partly that's because of the expressions of the faith. And particularly when you get into sacramental stuff, which are pretty significant differences, see that it, you want to honor your spouse, right? You want to you appreciate the background that your spouse has at the same time that you're trying to create something that has unity. And when there's such a, maybe a, a diversity in the way that worship is done and the style and the sacramental emphasis from the Lutheran perspective, it just makes it more complicated. It's not impossible. And there's a lot of people that do it well, Keith, <laughs> but uh, it's still complicated. It's just complicated is what it is. Yeah. I think it's less difficult to hand experience two different Christian denominations. Two different, I'm going to sort of repeat what you're saying because it's hard to hear. Two, a believer and an unbeliever. Okay. It took me 40 years, but I made a Lutheran out of the Nazarene preacher's son. So I think. A na- so a Nazarene preacher's son, and it took you 40 years. You wandered in the wilderness. You wandered in the wilderness. She wandered in the wilderness. And now you've reached the promised land, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how, what was the magic? How did you do that? Was the funny thing is, the Lutheran people came through to our son who was here. Yeah. He was in the Nazarene church from the day he was a week old. Uh-huh. Went to a Nazarene college. Yeah. According to the he became a little Yeah. So I've decided it's very successful right Yeah. That DNA is pretty strong, isn't it? Yeah. It's hard to resist that DNA. Yeah. Well, that's kind of interesting. We uh, Yesterday in the men's retreat, we, we, we went through the book of First Peter. That was the theme for that. And there is a, uh, there's a part in First Peter 4. Glenn, do you remember where it was? I don't remember where it was. Okay. Anyway, where it talks about, Peter mentions the idea that, that uh, there were wives in Peter's day who were married to men that were not believers. And the question was, is there, how do you, how do you, I don't think they use the word win that person over, but how do you influence that spouse to, uh, toward Christianity. And, and Peter's advice or Peter's counsel on that was, was that it was one without words, that it was not words that would bring that person in. And in fact, in a spousal relationship, words can sometimes get in the way is maybe you've experienced that where it almost sounds coercive in some way or uh, manipulative, maybe in some sense of that. But but that when the, the desire to win, the other person is there. And then the effort is not in what you say, but how you live. That that is, in fact, the stronger influence than anything that you could say. And so uh, we talked about that a little bit in the, in the retreat, because, because sometimes in our effort, I think, and certainly zeal, 
to win over the people that are the closest to us and are the most dear to us. We sometimes conclude that the best way or perhaps the only way to do that is by telling them stuff, right? Telling them stuff. And at least from Peter's perspective, uh, who he himself as an apostle was married. We don't know much about his wife, but he was married that that wasn't the best way to do it. It's how you, it's how you walk the walk. It really isn't how you talk the talk. Yeah, Keith. And then you have Paul, whose dad was a Roman, which probably was not anywhere associated with Christ. Right. His mom, mom was a Jew. Right. And how he turned out. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, wish, I wish Paul would have told us how that played out. Well, you know, the deal with Paul is, is that there's so much advice he gives about being married, which is always the case. People that are not married have tons of advice on how to do marriage, right? I'm talking about his childhood, because he grew up with it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there is a kind of sometimes there is a a religious or a denominational kind of cross-cultural thing that goes on. And that's why I'm off. You'll often hear me say that even though we would like to think when somebody joins a church or becomes a part of a denomination that they completely do away with all things that were that thing before Nobody does that. We just add the hyphen. And then what happens is we kind of adapt to the new thing without completely renouncing the old thing. And I think that's a way more practical way to look at it anyway, you know, to, uh, at least from my perspective. Yeah. I think a uh, person I've been married 52 years. 52. And I'm still Ooh. Pentecostal. Even You're still I'm Pentecostal? Living, even though I'm living. Yeah. See, here's the way that I look at it. We all serve the same God. We all have the same Bible. And there are differences. Yeah. There are differences. But there are strengths. Oh, yeah. And I get a lot of strength from still being Pentecostal. Sure. I get a lot of strength from the way I was raised mm -hmm. as a Pentecostal. Yeah. But I also get a lot of strength here as a Lutheran. Sure. And I will never renounce what my dad taught me right but i will always stand up for christ yeah always just whether i'm lutheran that's a name to me pentecostal is a name baptist is a name right and there's some theology there sure that that may differ but it's every one of those i've been to the baptist church i've been to the pentecostal mm -hmm. church i've i've been to the lutheran church Mm -hmm. We all worship the same God. Yeah. We all have the same feelings. We all have the same destination in mind. Yeah. And God is no respecter of person. Right. And he looks at the heart. And we just want to make sure that when we say that, we recognize that we're saying that from a Christian perspective, as opposed to in a non-Christian world, that um, if we say that without articulating that, it makes it sound like that, you know, Non-Christians have the same faith that we do. So I, I'm just trying to say that, Kristen, I've been married 52 years, and it's never been an issue. You've worked it out. Never yeah, been that's what issue. you have to do. You have to work it out. Yeah. And I think there's an aspect of iron sharpening iron. You know, because if you've grown up one way, yes, you know, yes, meeting someone else with differences in beliefs. Yeah. I mean, there's some there's some refining of your own faith. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I think 
is an advantage. And I'm thinking kind of the two of you guys. Okay, so does everybody know here by now that there's this? Okay, so Keith, you are from a Lutheran perspective. And Yvonne, you are from a Baptist perspective. Okay, so this, this couple is doing it. All right. Um, I know I said that wrong. But anyway, <laughs> um, here's what I think a strength that you have that would be a little harder for me and my wife, who we are both in our DNA from like, you know, five generations, not just Lutheran, but Missouri Synod Lutheran. So it's like we have that DNA in us and we're not unhappy about that. Okay. But here's the thing. Your daughter's going to go off to college at some point and be exposed to all kinds of people who are going to say, well, what makes you think that's the right way to do it? Why not this way? Why not that way? And because you guys have worked this out and continue to do that, I think she's way better equipped than growing up necessarily in a family where maybe the thought was there's only one way to be. There's only one way to think. There's only one way to do it. And I'm not saying anything bad about that. I'm just saying in what way might that be harder to deal with the world that we live in today? Does that make sense? Am I saying that? Am I saying that? Okay. I, I just think that to some degree, a lot of us, and I'm, I would say myself is a good example. I grew up in a very religiously parochial setting. And it really wasn't for me until I went to graduate school at Stephen F. in Nacogdoches for my counseling uh, life that I was really all that exposed to the sort of secular way that the world looks at things because I had gone to Lutheran schools my whole life. And that's a good thing. I'm glad I did. That gave me the the basis and the foundation uh, that I'm not departing from that. I have a, I have a way now to, f to filter out what I learn in the world and in the secular world for that. But to some degree, um, I was kind of shocked, I guess, you know, when you feel a little bit religiously sheltered, you're going, whoa, what do I do with that? And, and then you have to deal with it. Uh, yeah, Carl. Well, I, as I mentioned, in other classes, I came to Christ late in my life. Yeah. I knew God through my mother's leading in the Christian or Catholic Church. Yes. Yes. Not too long ago, I was asked by someone, what, what denomination are you? Yeah. I said, I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. And I happened to go to a Lutheran church because that's where I'm fed the most. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to and say if that. I wasn't fed here. Yeah. I'd be going somewhere else. Sure. <coughs> of course. Well, I know. I mean, because to some degree, and maybe this is true for some denominations more than others, is that we kind of wrap up our identity in that, in that church or in that denomination or in that religion. And, and when you grow up in it, and then you haven't really ever examined it, you just know that, well, this is what I grew up in. And I, it's the faith that I always grew up in. You don't always know what to do with it when someone challenges that, okay? And I think that we live in a world today where everybody's challenging it. It's really difficult now to find a, uh, a circle of people where everybody believes the same thing. It's just really hard to do that. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I think it's neat 
Because what it does is it forces you to look at your own belief and it forces you to look at what's important to you and say, uh, why do I feel that way? What do I base that on? And so I think it's, uh, as one of, my, uh, one of my professors from the seminary, who's now the, uh, the president of the seminary, says, it is a great time to be the church. It is a great time to be the church. Because we live in an era that is unchurched, or in some sense, dechurched. And people are looking for something to believe in. That's part of why there's so much interest in all these things that, oh, I want that, and I want that, and I want that. There's a high interest in uh, wanting to believe in something. And we just have to figure out how to connect us to that. Yeah, somebody else had their hand up. Nobody else had their hand up. Okay, very good. All right, so, okay, well, uh, no matter what, we are going to get done with this today, okay? <laughs> Even though we're only on what we talked about last week, all right? We are going get, to get done with that. Yeah. Uh, Peter, uh, going back to this, uh, children. Intergenerational, yeah. Yeah. They, what about that? Yeah. Train up a child. Train up a child in the way he will go or she will go. We have always taken that verse and turned it into religious indoctrination. That's what we've done with that verse. But that verse is bigger than that. Okay. So let's say it this way. If you raise your child to be a Lutheran, will he or she become a Lutheran? Yeah. But that's what we've always done with that verse. Ah, so you raise a child to be a Christian. Will they always be a Christian? Not necessarily, but if you raise a child to be a Christian, if you, if you raise a child to be a Christian, what probably at some point have you given to that child? More than that. You, you baptized them. You baptized them. Or had him baptized. Now, of what value is that? And some of us were baptized when we were like little bitties. And some of us were baptized when we were a little older. Doesn't make any difference. What, what value was it in the gift that you gave them in baptism? They may drift away, but they'll come back. Because why? Yeah. See... Uh, I talked about this in the men's retreat. Now I get to harp on it again, Richard. <laughs> See, why, am I why do I keep bringing this up? And you bring it up too, and I'm so glad you do. What, what is it that happens in baptism that once it happens, they become a beloved child of God and nothing changes that. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is given. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit now is working through the word all through that kid's life. And the Holy Spirit doesn't stop doing that. And so sometimes we look at the outward measures of that. We say, oh, well, I'm in church every Sunday, but my kid's only there once every six weeks. I mean, we look at the outside of that, don't we? And we conclude that on the basis of the outside, then there, that must be revealing what's on the inside. And I would sort of argue that Sometimes what's going on on the inside has nothing to do with what's going on on the outside. 
But we know, and you know this in your own life, the Holy Spirit works on you all the time. Is it of advantage if what that kid grew up with were all the Bible stories? Is that an advantage? Yeah, because then what do you have? You have a basis by which you can look back at the people in the Bible who maybe struggled with some of the same stuff you did. And then when you're having that struggle and you're having that conversation with your child, your adult child, you're able to refer back to those. I think one of the most challenging things today that's way different from when I grew up and maybe a lot of you grew up is that when you get in a sermon and you make a reference to Noah or to Abraham, you're looking around seeing clueless looks on people's faces because they don't know who that is. And you think, how in the world did that happen? How did, how did we go from everybody knew who that was to people going, I don't know who that is. How did that happen? Well, I mean, to some degree, we stopped talking about it. Yeah, Max. Uh, would you say that the Holy Spirit uh, could be considered your inner conscience, too? You know, the, that little angel on the right shoulder that says, you're doing good, and the one on the left that says, oh, no, don't do that. I'm sort of looking at your shoulder right now, wondering, <laughs> wondering, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, which one that is? Yeah. Um, I think the Holy Spirit can function that way. And often will. I mean, you know, from a Lutheran perspective, we often talk about the new nature and the, and the old Adam in us and kind of that fight that goes on back and forth. But I would also say that people who are not Christian also have a conscience. I mean, there's that sort of right, wrong that's built into us. Okay. So it's not certainly not limited to that. But I also think just the idea that when we say that the Holy Spirit, see, the Holy Spirit's deal is to work faith and to sustain faith and to maintain faith all through life. That's what it does. That's what he does or she does or it does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so when the Holy Spirit's doing that, that's comforting to you and to me if our children haven't sort of grabbed onto the faith maybe in the way that we have. And we look at that and we kind of go into parent panic and we think, oh, I got to say something and I got to do something. And the reality is they, they're at a different stage of life than you and I are. And it may well be that when we were their age, if some of us can remember that far back, right, that maybe we were questioning too. And maybe to some degree we were just a little bit rebellious. And maybe to some degree we were saying, what's the point of believing any of that stuff it's just what those old fogies believe. So uh, sometimes we have a hard time going backwards and remembering how we were too. So again, I want you to hear me say that having that solid foundation, I'm so grateful that I had that solid foundation. And I hope that that's something that you value as well. But with the solid foundation, we wish that that would guarantee more than it does. But it doesn't, does it? Right? And later in life, many times later in life, people come back and it's not like they ever left. It's just that there was a whole lot more searching and a whole lot more testing that went on, but they come back and that's the Holy Spirit's work, right? And that's the comfort that we have. Yeah. Do you 
that's kind of repeated what I what I, I tell myself with more children that are obviously adults. Yes. They're in there and they're functioning well. Yes. But we have to give up that pride in the sense of we have any control over that. We instill that that we didn't instill the Holy Spirit. That's right. something God put in. But we have to give up that we have any control over what adults do. Yeah. And if we did our job. Yeah. And we have to play the long game. We, mm -hmm. That that fruit may not come till we're pushing daisies by the roots. Yep. And we just have to give up, like, you know, no, we're not we're not God. And I that's think correct. That's where people struggle. Yeah, that's a little hard as a parent to remind myself I am not God. Yes, that is true. Yeah, Phil. Uh, just to bring some perspective and actually playing off of uh, the, the comment about playing the long game. Yeah. Um, children today that you know, that uh, they have like say average lifespan of well they will have an average lifespan seventy to ninety years. Yeah. Um, during the first 18 years when they're with their parents, that's nine, about 90% of the time over their entire lifetime yeah. that they will spend with their parents. Yeah. Once they once they turn 18 and go off, whether they go to college right, or go off into the workforce, right. assuming they move away out of town, yeah. the, like, the, that remaining 10% for the remainder of their entire lifetime would be around, would maybe yeah. involved with their parents. Sure, sure. Yeah. So you want to set that foundation, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. during that first 18 years of life, because that's that's the most amount of time you're ever going to spend with them. Yeah, and basis. and there's a lot of that that happens way more than what you say. It's it's also what you do, and that's that's the I think that's just the opportunity that we have from a parenting perspective to be able to do that. Okay, well I think we need to move on because if we don't. All right, so now let's get into number two. Yay, why does this matter? All right, why? Why does it matter beyond the fact that God says, I said so? Okay, there's a, we get it. There's a place for that. But, but beyond that, why does it matter that, we, that we, we, we follow that commandment in terms of you shall have no other gods before me? Why is that a good thing? Okay, foundational truth number seven is to reject God as the only God in your life means then that you're going to replace him with yourself as the source of life, security, purpose, and meaning for your life. See, if I say, well, God isn't that for me, and maybe I say, oh, and I'm open to all sorts of other things, the bottom line is I've replaced God with me. So there still is a God, right? The difference is, is it a God that can deliver? Is it a God that is merciful? Is it a God that loves me and all people? Or is it just me and my own self-interest and my own sort of limited scope of way I, the way I look at the world? And so you can hear that in what people say, sort of the, the self-made sort of perspective. I determine who, what, and when I serve. I determine my own morality. I determine the pur purpose of my life. Now, again, to some degree, I guess you could say there's some aspect of that that's true. You do, okay? But the question is, ultimately, who are you serving, and then of what benefit is it? Yes, Tom? It's that free will thing comes into play there. It can, yeah. I mean, although to some degree, it's also hard to tell 
if I'm making the decision out of my own truly free will, or have I been programmed over time to make that decision based on, you know, what somebody else says to me? That's the hard part to, to really, uh, to really know. Foundational truth number eight, you have little or no. So a way to think about this is what is true in foundational number seven will lead to number eight. Okay. If you, if you buy into that idea that, that God is not the only God in your life, then you have little or no, no, ultimate source of hope in the midst, particularly of suffering, losses in life, and situations in life that you can't control. How many of you have figured that out? That there's a million things that go on in the world that you cannot control. You would like to be able to have some influence over it, and you have zero. See, the problem is, what do you do with that? And if I'm the one who looks at myself as being the, the sole source of that, I'm going to run smack dab into that brick wall of what do I do with stuff that I can't control. Now, I know myself, and maybe you know yourself, that you will attempt to assert control over those situations, but what will happen is you will eventually run into that brick wall where you realize you can't. You can't make it better. And so what happens then for a lot of people when they don't have that relationship with God that they can turn to, they keep trying to do it themselves. And the kinds of things that we often then turn to that we think is going to make a difference are stuff that are, for the most part, self-destructive or avoidant in some way. And I kind of think that there's, there's a tendency for people to do that today because hope is in short supply in the lives of many people. It, at the end of the day, if, you've, if you think you've tried everything there is to try to make something better, to make that difference, what stops you then from eventually saying, you know what, I may as well just end it all, right? Because there's no hope of something being better than it actually is. So foundational no truth number nine is, is that when God is your God through faith in Jesus, you benefit from his mercy, from his mercy. In other words, you lean on and you go back to the mercy of God, particularly as it's, as it's expressed in the gift of forgiveness. See, I think that one of the things that can happen sometimes is that think about, for example, what, how many of you have regrets? Yes, we'll just go down the line here and everybody can talk about what's one regret you have. All right. What do you do with those? What? Give them to God. Okay, that's one thing. Glenn gives them to God. What else do you do? Pray to improve. Pray to improve. Okay. Self-improvement. Avoid doing it again. <laughs> we'll check with your wife on how well that's working for you. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of comes down to, though, but what do you do when the memory of that regret keeps coming back? This, this is where I would look at the mercy of God and saying that is a distinct advantage over people that have said, I don't need that God stuff in my life. I can take care of this myself. 
I don't know how you stop the thoughts of what you regret from keep coming back and replaying themselves over and over again in our minds. But when you can take what you regret and do what with it? Give it to the mercies of God and remind yourself that God forgives you and has forgiven you. And that eventually through the work of the Holy Spirit, I can kind of let go of that. I still might feel bad about it and feel like, oh boy, why did I do that? But there's not this sense of holding it against yourself. And that's what forgiveness takes care of. Does that make sense? See? And, and so again, that's kind of where that, that uh, aspect of faith in Christ and the benefit of God being the God in your life, that's what that brings to your life. Whereas it, if you didn't have that, I don't know what you would turn to. Because regret is kind of one of those things that kind of keeps coming back. And then it doesn't help if you have other people in your life that come up to you and remind you of those regrets and uh, say things like, you know, I just can't believe that you did that. I just can't believe it. So, you know, and what would you say to that from a Christian perspective? You could say, well, I can't believe it either. And I'm so glad God forgives me. And maybe someday you will too. How about that? All right. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be on the podcast. So you can, you don't have to, you can just, in fact, if you want, when you play the podcast, stop it right there and then put a loop on there. And then that way you could just keep redoing it. Yeah. Or put it on a t-shirt. And put it on a t-shirt backwards. So when you look at the mirror, you would see it frontwards. <laughs> this is getting really weird here, let me tell you. All right, so let's, the last part that I wanted to, want to spend a little time on is, you know, the last uh, number of weeks, um, we've been kind of touching on and kind of hitting on this, this whole thing of people today who uh, express themselves as being spiritual but not religious. All right. And, and I remember that a couple of weeks ago when, when I brought it up here in this class, it occurred to me that it touched a real nerve that, that it may well be that every one of us knows somebody who, whose expression of their spirituality is, is like that. And, and in some sense, it may even involve some of people that are very dear to us, like maybe a, uh, a, uh, a son or a daughter or, uh, uh, a spouse, or it might be even somebody that's your nephew or niece or grandkid or something like that. So what I thought we would do is take a little time to look at number seven in terms of in what ways can you, that's you and me, who know we are God's beloved, respond or witness in the hope that we have, right, and that we receive through Jesus, is there a way for us to be responsive to that? Because it, there is just kind of this uh, phenomenon today where people just say, I don't want, I don't want to ha have anything to do with organized religion. I, it's just me and God. And then they cite all of the flaws or many of the flaws that you get in anything that's human, right? Anything. And organized religion certainly would qualify as, uh, as a setting in which uh, the, the, the uh, flaws and failings of human beings would show up. Okay. So, uh, some, some little tips here, and then we're actually going to look at a situation from the book of Acts where, uh, St. Paul encountered the same thing. Okay. So just a couple little things here. One is 
uh, if you are in a relationship with that individual, let's say it's one of your adult children or, or somebody like that, all right? Part of the deal is to keep the conversation going. Um, I like kind of what was said earlier with respect to that um, this is a long-term process, is it not? Faith development and the appreciation of faith and the value that faith brings comes out of conversation. And when I say conversation, I don't mean preaching to somebody. I don't mean um, uh, buying uh, Christian books and leaving them out on the table for when they come over and kind of turn it slightly so that they'll see it and then hoping they'll pick that up and take it with them and read it and their life will be changed. I don't know. Anybody has tried that? I don't know how successful that is, but uh, um, that's one of the things sometimes we do. Another one is for you to speak up about the benefits and the blessings that you've experienced, but be candid about any darknesses that have plagued you. See, I think one of the things that sometimes we're reluctant to do from a Christian perspective is to talk about the struggles, to talk about real life. You know, I think to some degree, we're a little afraid of that. I don't know. Maybe it's because we don't want to be vulnerable, but, but I think it's also because we want everybody to think that the Christian life is the most wonderful thing there is. And that because it's so wonderful, uh, we sort of imply that no bad things ever happen and that's not real. And so I think to some degree, people today want to know, is it real? Or is this just like a fairy tale? Or is it just like a myth where at the end of the story, everybody sails off into the distance, living happily ever after? And sometimes we present our faith life like that. And so what the suggestion here is, is to go ahead and speak up about the blessings and the benefits, but do it in the context of maybe how did you get to that place? And maybe you had to go through a dark time or maybe a dark situation in order to get there. Does that make sense to say it that way? Yeah, it's kind of like being real. And that's what the next one says is be real and acknowledge any faith struggles that, uh, that you've had. Be genuine, uh, not pathetic, but certainly not settling for pat answers. What is a, what, what's an example, do you think, of a pat answer? What's a pat answer? What does that mean? I know. That's the answer I, that's the pat answer I get. It's, oh, I know. And when you hear that, how did, how do you feel? What's your feeling when you hear somebody say that? that that's the, I don't care to have this conversation any further. This <laughs> okay. So that would be a good reason not for me to say that to somebody else in this sort of setting, right? Or to feel like, have you ever felt like that you have to have a Bible verse to respond to everything somebody else says? Have you ever thought that before? I mean, I, th I went through that stage too as a, as a young pastor thinking that I needed to have a Bible verse to respond to every situation. And I never could remember where the Bible verse was. And this was before the Google Bible was invented so where I could just look it up. So it, we don't have to, you don't have to, okay? It's nice if you do, but sometimes quoting scripture 
in the middle of that conversation, when somebody's talking about their struggles, kind of makes it sound like that it's not okay for them to have the struggle and then to tell you about it in the first place. And it just kind of shuts down the, the conversation. So sometimes it's good to have the Bible verse, but way later than maybe in that, uh, in that given moment. Be respectful of the person by acknowledging the sincerity of their spiritual search as you speak about what Jesus has done for you. Anybody relate to the idea of a spiritual search? Or have you just kind of had the, all the answers that you wanted throughout your whole life? Okay. And again, sometimes those of us that are raised in the church, we sort of think that part of our Christianity means that we could never have doubted anything, right? We never could have had uh, fears. We never could have even had moments when we said, oh, this is a bunch of hooey. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we, w we could admit that. And in a conversation like this, I think it's important to admit that because then you become human and you're a real human, not a stained glass human. Okay. What's a stained glass human? We have stained glass in our church. <laughs> when I say a stained glass human, if you've ever looked at any of those pictures that are in the stained glass of our church, they never show any of those people in there doing anything dumb. No, I'll take a look at it. They're beautiful. They're beautiful, but, but they're stained glass, right? And yet, if you read the story of Noah in the Bible, you will be aghast at some of the things that was a part, a part of Noah's life, right? So that's being real. And I think to some degree, the world today is calling us to be real, to just get out of the stained glass and get back into how does this, how does this faith really speak to me? Is that, would that be true, do you think? Accurate? Yeah. All right, let's go to the next page. We can learn from the Bible how to engage the culture of the N-O-N-E-S. That's the phrase that's used, the designation that's used for people that see themselves as very spiritual, seeking a relationship with God, but not wanting to have anything to do with organized religion or anything having to do with the rules that often are associated with that. Okay. So in the book of Acts, St. Paul is out doing his mission work and he is in Greece, right? And so we pick it up in verse 16 where it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Uh, the city was full of idols. So see, Athens was the, the cultural center, but also a religious center for, uh, uh, for Greeks. And because Greeks believed in the multiplicity of gods, the, the, uh, uh, very much of a pluralistic uh, society, we can sort of argue that there's a lot in common that we today, our culture has with the, with the Athenians. So what do we see? He's greatly distressed right? It really bothers him to see this city that is filled with the idea that there's more than one God and that people should worship more than one God. And yet what is his response? He reasons with them. 
He's able to take his distress and not use it in a way that uh, he, where he would become irrational. So learning number one is that what we can learn from that is to engage in, I-N, informed conversation. In other words, to listen well and be respectful of their point of view, even if you disagree with it. I don't know, uh, is, that a ta- is that a hard task to do? To reason with someone when what the position that they're presenting is like way out in left field is at least as far as it is for your, from your perspective. Is that hard to do or do some of you find that it is a challenge to do it, but you can do it? What does it take to be able to do that? Patience? Yeah, it does take patience. You really have to take the long view that where we are in this conversation may not be where we end up, but it's not going to be a quick thing, okay? So making the time to do it is a significant piece to that. And some of us think, oh, we should be able to have this conversation and get it done in 10 minutes, and then that ought to be it. That is not the way it works, okay? Yeah. Sometimes I think we fail to realize that as bad as our responses are to those people, yeah. those people are having as much trouble expressing their position to us. Yeah. That, that in other words, they may say things that we off the top think are, are stupid, yeah. but it's not that, it's just they're not articulate. They're just having a hard time explaining it, yeah. yeah. Uh, so one of the little things like I do a lot of is... I'll um, hear somebody and then I'll kind of paraphrase back what I hear them say. And, and that helps me articulate what I think they're hearing, but it helps them uh, listen to what I'm saying. And then they can say, oh, no, that isn't what I meant. Or, no, that's not what I'm saying. And so sometimes that conversation like is never ending, right? I mean, if you're an impatient person and you're thinking, oh, you know, we only got 15 minutes to get this thing done, that isn't gonna, that's going to be hard for you, all right? But it's actually something that we can learn to do. You can learn to do it. Um, I just think that to some degree you have to, uh, to kind of make yourself do that. The other part of it is with the informed conversation. So have you ever, like, sat down with someone who was trained in a science-based perspective that may be evolution-based and that flies in the face of many of the things you believe in terms of the Bible. How do you have an informed conversation with that person? How do you do that? Because you're informed in your own perspective, which is Bible, six-day creation, all that kind of thing, but they're not informed in that. So if you want to have a connection, what are you probably going to have to do? You're probably going to have to read some of the stuff that they've been reading. Now, I've tried to do that, and I have no idea what they're talking about. It's really hard. I'm not a technology-based thinker. I'm not a science-based thinker. So I'm working really hard at trying to find that connection in there. But it is really hard. It takes some time to do that. I think that if you take the time to do it and, and put some effort into it, the fact that you are willing to meet them halfway will mean a lot. 
okay, as opposed to simply saying, well, I believe that uh, the Bible says that the, Bob, the earth was created in six days, and that's how it is, <laughs> okay? See, that's not going to go well in terms, and, and that's what I see St. Paul doing here in Athens. What is he doing? He's, taking, he's reasoning with them. He understands where they're coming from. In fact, he was raised in that himself, right? So he does have an appreciation for, for where they're coming from, even though clearly he's going to take this conversation in a direction that they're not expecting. Okay? Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Learning number two, prepare yourself to be not taken seriously by some, but others may be intrigued. So don't take the rejection personally, even though it might in fact hurt your feelings. Okay? It probably will hurt your feelings. I mean, if I get rejected, it's going to hurt my feelings. And maybe some of you are like that. There's probably others of you that say, oh, it doesn't hurt my feelings, right? Okay, that's kind of a personality thing. But even if it does, don't take it personally as if somehow they're rejecting you or that there is even a rejection. There might just be a caution there, okay? And that's how Paul, that's how Paul, uh, he's not put off by that, okay? He seems to be in some ways energized by that. The next verse, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. What was it about the resurrection that would have flown in the face of a Greek? Pardon? That he rose from the dead bodily. Because what the Greeks believed in was the teachings of Plato, which said that when you die, your soul goes to in a reincarnated way. And there was no way that the body would ever come back to life. So Plato believed that the body was evil and the spirit was good. And so then that's, uh, uh, that's why that would not have happened. So they took him and they brought him to the meeting, a meeting of the, Are I always say this wrong, Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. And then there's this little extra statement. I love this. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Oh, there's none of that going on in our world today, is there, huh? Those slackers, didn't they get jobs? You know, that's kind of where we, uh, we kind of go with that, all right? Learning number three, some of what you say may, M-A-Y, may trigger their curiosity, Okay. The other interesting aspect about this was, was that Paul was presenting ideas that were so strange to them that they said, we can't handle this. We're going to take this to the higher level. There may be opportunity that you, that you didn't ever even know would happen, that instead of uh, working with the students, they may say, we're going to take you to our instructors. We're going to take you to our professors. We're going to take you to the people that can answer your questions. Okay. Paul then stood up in the meeting and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Learning number four, creatively affirm their spirituality. Even if it seems to you that they are not religious. What does Paul do? He doesn't harp on the fact that they have a million gods. What he says is from that, I conclude that you are very what? Very religious. Isn't that interesting? Okay. He takes a different tack. Then he goes on to say, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, We are his offspring. Learning number five is start with what you have in common. That's what he's doing. See, he's identifying that, you know, you're kind of uh, worshiping God. You're spiritual people. You even have this idol that says to an unknown God, right? And so he looks for what they have in common. Number six is that you show respect by educating yourself on the teachings of of the poets that they listen to or read. What does that mean? The poets that they listen to or read it's their authors. Yeah. So have you ever read any Albert Einstein? Have you ever read any, uh, Stephen Hawking? See, some of these guys are the sort of heroes of, uh, some of those perspectives. So to at least have a little bit of working knowledge off of that is a good thing. Now Paul gets to the harder part. Okay, I want to get this done, then we'll go to that. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now you get to the personal aspect of this in number seven is that you share the gospel by telling them what Jesus has done for you and how he has helped you in difficult moments of life. Now you're taking it from kind of the general, I think, in some sense to a more specific place. Here we get to verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Okay, now we know why. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the council, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Number eight, remember that your task is to plant the seeds. God is in charge of making them grow, right? 
And then number nine, sometimes it's the people that you least expect who are the receptive hearts. See, that's what Paul, Paul, what did he do? He preached the gospel. He planted the seed. And then interestingly enough, he left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he knew when to shut up. That's a good point, Kathy. That's a good, yeah, sometimes. Okay, so now guess what? We have completed the first commandment. And how long did it take? Four weeks? All right, so there's 10 commandments times four. How many weeks are we, are we doing this? Oh, good Lord, save us from ourselves, right? All right, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, this study, and thank you so much for the way that your word speaks to us. And, and sometimes it does, Lord, take more than a week to get through a commandment, but I think that's probably because that's what your word does. It, it, it triggers things in us, and it, it, it sort of aggravates and agitates, and, and, and it also comforts. So, Lord, as we uh, kind of put these things to work, and now we're thinking about this week about the second commandment in terms of, of how we use your name, uh, I would simply pray, Lord, that uh, what, we've ta- what we've taken uh, this day uh, as we move forward will, will be a benefit and blessing to us. Bless those in our lives, Lord, that are struggling. They're searching for a reason to believe and something to believe in that's greater than themselves. And I would simply pray, Lord, that through all of this, that you would prepare us and that then also you would bless us as we seek to reach out to people that don't know you. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be with those uh, in the next couple of weeks of our, of our uh, fellowship here who are going to be traveling to Israel uh, with the uh, congregational trip. And we pray that all of that will go well and everyone will return safely home. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.